the title of today's message, hey, you're going to love this, The Most Terrifying Moment. Isn't that a great message title? <laughs> the Most Terrifying Moment. As I was studying this text last week, I was like, man, what are you trying to say in this text? How could it apply to God's people? And uh, this thought of the most terrifying moment. Hey, let's do this. Uh, let's read this text before we jump into it. Y'all okay with that? All right, let's go with our, our scriptures. Let's take Amos chapter 4. And let's take it. Why don't you go ahead and stand, uh, stand to your feet and kind of make sure you get some circulation in your feet. But also, sometimes, you don't have to do it. It's not like required, but man, sometimes it just, it just has a reverent standing in awe of his word. Doesn't have to be every time you do it, all right? Okay, chapter 4, we're going to go through verses 1 through, through, through 13. The title of the message is, The Most Terrifying Moment, okay? That's the title of the message. And you're going to see all through this text, I see some very terrifying things. A lot of terrifying things. But there's one thing that I think is most terrifying of all, Okay? Now remember, if you're a guest, we're preaching through the Minor Prophets, and I just want to set this up so you understand what we read. He's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, and he is now cataloging some final things before God, before the, he pronounces more judgment on them. They've been doing this a lot. You know, we've been, this is our 17th message, 17th message in the Minor Prophets. God keeps warning them and warning them and warning them, and sometimes people read the Minor Prophets and think, ugh. Why does God do this over and over? Because he's that kind. He's that kind. He warns that much. He is that patient. So that when, if judgment has to come, no one is able to say, I didn't know. Right? That's how kind he is. I mean, just the very fact that any of us are, are, if any of us are followers of Jesus in here today, it's God's kindness that has given you that opportunity. I don't know how many times I said no to God before I actually said yes to God, right? And so, like, it's his kindness. But nonetheless, here he is. By the way, chapter 4, verse 1, probably don't make this your favorite verse. But we'll do it anyways. Hear this, you cows of Bashan. Okay? Do not ever say that to your wife, okay? Do not do that. Okay. Hear this. Hear the word, you cows of Bashan. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring, that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you. And when you shall, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into um, to Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress and to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Those are major cities in northern Israel where they worshipped. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of which is leaven. And proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. And so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord your God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain one, on one city, then send uh, no rain on another city. One field will have rain, and the field in which it did not have rain would wither. 
So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Verse 13, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts. That's his name. Lord, have your hand on our word as we keep going into your word on these minor prophets. We have so many times forsaken them, not listened to them, not wanted to hear their message. But this message is still good and applicable to us today. A different context from Israel, a different setting, but the message is still for us today. All scripture, including this, is inspired by God and helps us to know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at chapter 4. And I'll, I'll explain some of this, what's going on in this text. And the title of my message is The Most Terrifying Moment. The Most Terrifying Moment. Now, um, in my life, I've seen many terrifying moments. Um, so one time I remember, this is, I, I still, when I think about it, it still terrifies me. When I was 17 years old, after church, the, the church that I was going to, we had like an after church picnic where we went to a um, kind of like a picnic area that was out in kind of a forest area that you could rent out. Well, as a lot of us teenagers kind of wandered into the forest and just kind of checking things out, we discovered there was a zip line, okay? There was a tree with a zip line, and the zip line was about 30 feet up in the air, okay? And it was just the kind of zip line. It's not like the kind of ones we have now where there's like safety harnesses. It was like how it should be, just like, you know, a piece of metal on a wire, and you just run down it, right? And, of course, in typical fashion back that day, there were no safety nets. We, you know, we didn't have to have help. I mean, we just knew how to survive back then. Well, I can remember us climbing this tree. And there was probably a reason there was no ladder to get up the tree because it was probably unsafe. But, you know, when you're 17 years old, what does not having a ladder ever stop you from getting up a tree and going down what looks like a really fun zip line? So we found a way to get up that tree anyways. It was about 30, maybe 25 feet up in the air. And, and then, but I noticed once you got off, there's a little platform and then, uh, and then it, it went all the way to like another tree and then it kind of got down to about, about 10 or so feet and then you kind of hit the tree and then you could jump down. But it was kind of up this 25, 30 feet where you started off. You get to the platform, it's a small platform, and then you just kind of hold on and launch off. I noticed though, I went first, um, now, I noticed, though, when I went, I noticed that there were some broken branches about a foot sticking out of the, you know, the ground right underneath this, like a couple of them. I thought to myself, I'll probably be okay. I just have to hold on. So 
I went down. You know, just so you know, when you're 17 years old, you don't think anything bad can happen to you. You think you're invincible. Just so you know, you're not. And but but just so you also know, no matter how many many people tell you that, you won't really think it till you're about 40, right? Then you're going to know there's no possible way I'm indestructible. When you can sit on a couch and pull a muscle, then you're going to know, okay, I'm not indestructible. Just so, like, how did that happen? I was just sitting here. You don't know it yet. So, anyways, I launch off, go down it, and, oh, great, man, this works. Everybody, keep going up. You know, but then I didn't realize that, that not everybody may be ready for what, what it takes to hold on to a zip line. So a little 15-year-old girl probably couldn't have weighed 80 pounds wet. She decides that she's going to go next. And in my mind, I kind of thought to myself, you know, someone could probably fall off that thing. And if they did, that would probably stab them like a vampire. And like, that's it, lights out. And sure enough, when this girl went off, as soon as she stepped off that platform, you know, there's an initial jolt, you know, when you're doing those zip lines, it yanked her off. And all of a sudden, like a rag doll, this girl comes falling 25 to 30 feet down. The most terrifying thing I thought could happen that day was happening right in front of my eyes. And I thought this girl was as good as dead. Now the grace in it, she landed right in between. Now this girl, 80 pounds, she landed right between two of those sticks that were sticking up about this far from her body. So lying on the ground, it's like, One's here, and one's here, and she's right in the middle, right? So, praise God, nothing happened. At that, at that point, none of us did this zipline anymore. But I remember in that moment being absolutely terrified when I saw what was happening. As terrified as I was in that moment doesn't even compare with the terror that's coming in our text today. Doesn't even compare. Look at the text. I want to show you some terrible things, some terrifying things. First, if you look on your outline, it was a terrifying moment when the women influenced their husbands to oppress the poor for luxuries. It was a terrifying moment. So if you look in the text of chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. So the prophet, by the way, just so you know, what kind of prophet is this guy? Okay, he's from a foreign country. He comes up there. He's already been telling them bad things about judgment. And now if it's not bad enough, he decides to call the women a bunch of cows, right? How boss is this kind of guy? This guy has absolutely no fear whatsoever. Now, just so you know, he's calling them the cows of Bashan because Bashan, which is in the northeastern part of Israel, that area is has very luscious and fertile ground, very luscious forest. And if you wanted to fatten up cows and get them ready for slaughter, you would send them up there to Bashan. And that's where they would grow large and they would grow luxurious. This is where you're going to get the most resources. So he comes in and he says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. So he basically comes and says, ladies, you have influenced your husbands to keep oppressing the poor. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we told you about this. We told you that they were violating the laws of Moses and how you were to treat poor people. And they were oppressing. And these, these women were influencing their husbands to continue the oppression of the poor and needy so that they could get more resources. In the end, it says, bring us that we may drink. They wanted more luxuries. Now, I'll tell you a funny story. You ready for a funny story? 
So I mean, when I read this this past week, I was like, who is this Amos guy? Like, this guy is such a country bumpkin. Like, he, he holds nothing back. Like, this would be, I mean, like, all the, the judgments he said before, like, you never get away even hinting at these kind of things with a woman, right? So, like, years ago, I, um, <laughs> I asked Cindy if I could tell the story. You know, I've said so many stupid things in my life, right? Haven't y'all done this? So when she was, when she was pregnant with Arabella, you know, you know, you go and get pregnancy swimsuits and stuff like that, right? And so she had this pregnancy swimsuit. It was such, so cute. It was pink, but with black polka dots, right? And I thought, like, it was a really cute swimsuit, wore it all through, you know, pregnancy with Arabella. Well, then, you know, you know, like sometimes in life, you don't get to go get a new swimsuit or whatever. You just, you know, like, you know, you just kind of, you know, we had her during the winter and then, you know, something happened where we were just like having a, a like, it's swim time. It's warm again, right? And there's not many, you know, the last swimsuit she had on hand was the one that, that, that was the one that she used for Arabella. And I remember, not even connecting the dots to my mind. I wonder if Amos could connect the dots here. <laughs> I remember she put it on. I said, oh, you're going to wear that, that cow swimsuit. Okay, that's great. <laughs> now, to my defense, I was not saying she looked like a cow. I just thought black polka dots, right? And cows have polka dots. And so in my little mid-20s-year-old mind, I just thought I was just describing the polka dots. But let me ask you, do you think that was easy to come back from? <laughs> I mean, like at that point, I tried to explain. I tried to like, you could, there's like no way you can recover from that one, right? But here's Amos. He's not, he's not like the guy with the peppermint sock in his mouth like I was that day. This dude means exactly what he's saying. He's saying, like, you have lived in luxury and you have, you have oppressed the, po- the poor to get more luxuries for you, you cows of Bashan. I mean, like, he goes full bore. He's like, I'm holding nothing back from you. How dare you do this? Now, this is a terrifying moment, not only for Amos, but just for the very fact of, like, in my soul, I, I sometimes get concerned I mean, like, none of us think that we're, like, rich or anything like that. But, man, when you really start to look at the world around us and you start to compare, we're living pretty luxurious, aren't we? I mean, we really are. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these resources, but at times I am asking myself, I don't think any of us are oppressing people with the luxuries that we have, but I do ask myself sometimes and say, Lord, am I living on, am I living on what you want me to live on so that I can be more generous to people that need it, Right? Like, I'm, I'm asking myself that question all the time. I do still wonder sometimes. Even, I don't decry, because, like, good things can be blessings from the Lord. But sometimes I wonder, like, are we going further than what the Lord wants us to go? Like, are we leveraging ourselves in such a way that when the Lord gives us an opportunity to help the poor or to help the needy or to help someone who is defenseless, do we have the resources to do that? Like, I wonder that thing sometimes. So here we see this. They were coveting. They were doing wrong things, but more than coveting, they were trying to get luxuries at the expense of the poor. They were getting luxuries at the expense of God's prescription in the scriptures. And by the way, I will tell you this. This is not a giving sermon or anything like that, but I will tell you this. Here's one of the blessings of being generous in life. When I first started, and by the way, I'm not doing this to kind of get a raise or anything like that. It doesn't matter. Like our church could have like, you know, a $100,000 offering. That's not going to change anything, right? Like, because I guarantee you, you got $100,000 of stuff right here in front of you that needs to be replaced, right? Just look at the stains every one inch on the carpet in here, right? So, but I'll tell you something I've noticed through the years. 
very early, I was discipled to be generous to the Lord, right? And I was taught the kind of training wheels of tithing and stuff, not as a law, but as a way to, to, as a way to shoot for um, generosity. I don't believe, is it, it, I don't believe like it, everybody has to tend, you know, like I've, I've met these single moms that like they're given 2% and it's a sacrifice and it affects their life. Like, like that's the point of tithing is it's usually a point of sacrifice for people. I tell some people like, Man, 10% may be too much. 10% for some people, if it doesn't affect your lifestyle, that's not enough. Like, it's just usually it's a place of sacrifice. Nonetheless, early on, I remember getting discipled in this. And I remember when I looked at some of my friends early on, there's things they were able to buy with their money that I wasn't when I, and because of just the generosity of, of my life. I mean, I was already giving to missions outside, even, even early on as a believer. And I remember saying, I remember like, man, Lord, that just doesn't seem right. But as I've grown through the years, I've learned that some of those things that I would have bought with those resources in the end wouldn't have been good for my soul. Like, like not all things that we want should we necessarily have. And like, there's been times in my life where I'm like, Lord, thank you so much that you protected me from myself. And, and just the, there's a reason why God wants us to be generous and that generosity should be a sacrifice. Like giving should sacrifice a lifestyle. And here's what you see in the text. They, they so much didn't even want generosity to affect their lifestyle. They wanted to go further and let it affect other people's lifestyle, the people who could do nothing for themselves, the poor and the needy. This is terrifying that they could do that kind of thing. It's terrifying to me even how far that we can go. It's also terrifying that this is just one more area of judgment that the Lord was going to bring on them for what they had done. By the way, I'll just give you a side note of kind of, um, this is extra. We won't pass the offering plates for this. We don't have offering plates, so I guess I can't really do that anyways, right? You know, as a man, one of the things that, you know, we live in a, a society that, I mean, like, there's always a plan. Like, if you don't have a plan for your money, I guarantee you someone else and something has a plan for your money. It always does, right? Like, you don't plan, there's going to be a plan someone else is going to make for you, right? Here's one of the things I've discovered being a husband and talking to men is that, like, men, men who are really trying to serve their wife and love their wife, like, if there's something that, they, that their family or household wants, they want to provide it at all costs. And I would tell you this. If you can't give everything that your family wants, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's some things that the Lord doesn't maybe want them to have. You don't have to beat yourself up on that. Like, like, like it's okay. And sometimes, if there's things that your family is desiring, you know, sometimes they're just desiring for glory. You ever notice this? There's something called retail therapy. You ever heard of it? Like, I, I don't personally get retail therapy. Now, listen, I got my own sin, so don't, don't worry. I mean, I've got, I've got like pizza, you know, pizza therapy, right? I mean, like, like I could down a large pizza, and feel really good about it in the moment. There's some people who, like when they purchase things, there's an excitement that happens in their soul. Like for me, when I purchase things, there's not an excitement in my soul. I'm thinking, man, how hard did I have to work to, to, you know, to spend money on that? But there's some people like, that's, that's like excitement for them, right? You know that, that sometimes when you're doing that, it may be coveting, it may be sin, but also you're looking for something more. You're looking for some satisfaction. You're looking for some glory, you're looking for something that really gives you, uh, like, that you're awake. And there's something you feel sometimes when you purchase that thing or make that click or buy that item. And ultimately, you're trying to fill yourself with something that was only meant to be satisfied with God. You know what's sometimes really good to do with items that are, I guess, kind of luxury items, items that you don't need? 
if there's something that you have the money for, and it's not necessarily something you need, do the pause principle, which is, let's just pray about it first. Like, we have the money. Let's pray about it. Let's ask the Lord. Let's ask the Lord, like, could, is there somebody that could use these resources instead? So anyways, this is what happens. It's, ter- it's, it's a terrifying thing that they could do this to, to the poverty, to people in poverty, just so they can get more luxury. It's also terrifying that God would be judging them for it. But that's not the most terrifying thing right here. Well, let's look at the next thing. Look at number two, in verse number two. It will be a terrifying moment when Assyria comes to capture them. God's been warning them about their sin. In verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness and that behold, the days are coming upon you when you shall take away, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. So, like this is terrifying. This is a terrifying moment to know the Lord is basically saying, this is what Assyria is going to do to you. Now, Assyria, which was a horrible, atrocious kind of, uh, kind of country that, when they came after you, it was big time. I mean, they had all these intimidation tactics. Like, they would, like, rip a baby out of a pregnant woman just to kill the baby and then kill her. And just to put everybody on notice that, like, you cross us, this is how far we're willing to go. We'll do the most atrocious things right in front of your face. Now, one of the things they also would do is when they would come, Assyria would come and conquer you, they would haul you off to slavery, haul you off to captivity. And one of their favorite demeaning ways to do it is they would take a chain and a fish hook and put it around, put it in your mouth like you were a fish, attach it to chains and align with people, and that's how they cart you off. Person by person, in a row, connected by chains, connected with a hook in your mouth. So when the prophet says this, this is like a real thing that they knew that the Assyrians would do. This is terrifying. Just to think that you could one day be brought out of your house with a hook in your mouth, your neighbor being brought up, hooked, put to a chain, and marched off to a foreign country. That is a terrifying thing. Terrifying. But you know what? In our text, I don't think that's the most terrifying thing. It's bad. It was the judgment that God was bringing on them. But I don't know if that was the most terrifying thing necessarily. He also says in verse 3, You shall go and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. You shall be cast out into harmon, declares the Lord. You know, the, usually when you, had, when you had a defense, you had a fortress, you had a wall, and usually that would be your kind of final protection. And he's saying, like, the wall's going to be broken down. There's going to be breaches, and you're going you're gonna to die straight forward. I mean, there's no hiding. You're gonna, you're gonna, a lot of you are going to lose your life. This is a terrifying moment to know that, like, you're going to be conquered. Either if you don't die in that, in that onslaught from Assyria, you're going to be hauled off like a fish getting caught with a hook in your mouth to Assyria. This is a terrifying moment. But it's not the most terrifying moment. It's a terrifying thing. But in our text, I don't think it's the most terrifying thing. Now, here's the next. Y'all still with me? Aren't you glad to be here on Labor Day? Like, what y'all talk about on Labor Day? Terror. <laughs> Come to my church. We talk about terrible things. Number three. It was a terrifying moment in verse four. This is point number three in your outline. It was a terrifying moment when Israel worshiped for show. Oh, man. You know what kind of, what I'm so scared of in our evangelical culture in the West at large, what I'm scared of? I'm scared that one day when we get before the throne, the Lord's going to look at us and he's going he's to have an evaluation of what our worship times look like as a body. And he's just going to go, 
That was way too much show. Boy, you were way too much show. It, like, you completely missed me. That is a terrifying thought to me. Even right now, it terrifies me. It terrifies me. I mean, I'm always asking the Lord about this. This is what they were doing. When you look in the text, here's what basically happened. The, God's, God's system of worship was through in Jerusalem, through the temple for the Jewish people. When the kingdom divided, the northern kingdom shut themselves off from Jerusalem. They didn't go to Jerusalem and worship anymore. So they built their own altars, their own way of worship in Bethel and Gilgal. And, these, and their worship was very pagan. And they tried to actually mix some pagan things with some of their Jewish things. They tried to mix some things about the true one, the one true God and paganism, worship of Baal. They tried to mix these two things. You can't mix actually light and darkness. You actually start going over into darkness. And so they had very pagan looking kind of worship. And they were going to do it anyway. So he says in verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress. What he's basically saying is, every time you come to worship, you're actually transgressing. Like, it's all for show that you're doing. And to Gilgal, a multiplied transgressions. I'll show you why they were multiplying transgressions. He said this, bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Just so you know, the tithing that Israel did was usually yearly. And then every three years they had a tithe that went to the Levites and to the poor. Kind of ironic, right? So here's what's happening. When up in verse 1, they're, they're, they're stealing from the poor, taking more resources, and they're not actually supporting the poor like they were supposed to do. And, and, and they weren't even taking tithes up for the poor anymore, but they were taking up tithes. They were doing it like every three days. Why is that? They were doing it for show. They were giving money for show. And, and here's the thing that's really bad about it. It looks really good like, hey... <laughs> We're so much more righteous than like our southern kingdom because they give this yearly and every three years, every three days we're tithing. Yeah, but what they were doing is that money wasn't going to some of the things that God had said the money should go towards. It was just going to make things more impressive. It was just going to make Bethel and Gilgal more impressive. It was going to make their worship look like more of a show, right? That's why even in my heart sometimes I even battle with this idea of church buildings and spending it and, and, and resources. And like, you know, I struggle with it. I mean, I struggle in my heart, like how far is too far? What's appropriate? I'm still trying to answer that for my soul, just so you know. But here's these people. It was all for show, man. Even the money they were collecting wasn't even going to what it should be. It was just going for something for themselves to put up a good show. Even look in verse five, offer a sacrifice of Thanksgiving. These were good sacrifices, offerings, free, um, Thanksgiving offerings, thanks offerings, of which is leaven. Just so you know, when you did a thank offering, it was supposed to be with unleavened bread. This shows you how they're corrupt. They're using leavened bread, which was representative of sin. And even that, it says, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. Free will offerings were supposed to, these thank free will offerings were supposed to be spontaneous offerings. It's these offerings that weren't prescribed, but they were spontaneous, right? Well, things are very spontaneous if you go around publishing that you're doing it. So what were they doing? It was for show. That's why they were publishing it. They wanted everybody to know, this is what we're giving. They wanted everybody to know, hey, we're taking up more tithes. We're doing it every three days. Look at us. Look at the sacrifices we're bringing. Hey, the free will offerings. I want to let everybody know what I'm doing when it really wasn't supposed to be a kind of published thing. Like, like the Day of Atonement, that was a published thing. But when you were giving these spontaneous offerings, this wasn't about making much of yourself. But this is what their worship was. It was all about me. It was all about self. This is what they were doing. Look in verse 5. Amos says, For so you love to do, O people of Israel. He said, You love to worship and make a show of yourself. 
this is, man, like, man, I, I struggle sometimes because I cannot tell you, like, how many times when, when, like, people move to a new city or they're looking for a place of worship, the typical thing they'll ask themselves is, like, did I like the worship? Did I like the preaching? Did I like the youth ministry? Did I like the children's ministry? And I'm not trying to say we should do those things bad. What I'm just saying is, even the way we evaluate a church typically isn't very healthy. It's, it's actually kind of a show. Like, when was the last time uh, you, you had a friend who was visiting a church, and they kind of said, you know what our criteria for visiting a church is? Is it, is it doctrinally strong, and can we be shepherded, and can we be in accountable relationships? I'm just telling you, rarely have I heard people visiting a church say, that's what I'm looking for first. Or, or like, hey, is that a church that does redemptive discipline? Like, will they go to the next level with me if needed? By and large, that's not how we train Christianity. By and large, it's really about like, what can I get out of it instead of what I can give? I'm not, I'm not trying to like down on things. I'm just saying, we're these people, I think sometimes. This is what they were doing. It was terrifying. It's terrifying to my soul. Like someday when I get before the Lord, like it will terrify me to no end for him to say, man, you really influenced this culture of meism, of show. Like that was what you were all about. You, you were, you know, there's a song, I'm not a fan, you know, I don't know if I'm not a fan. I just don't really listen to music, but there's this Lady Gaga song, right? I don't, I can't believe I'm saying the word Lady Gaga on the pulpit, right? It just feels weird, Right? I don't even know if that's a real name, but nonetheless, see, there's a song uh, that I heard one time. It really caught my ear. It says, I live for the applause, applause, applause. I live for the applause, applause. I'm not going to sing the rest. If it won't be, you know, um, and then I, I kind of, you know, Googled, looked the lyrics. I'm like, what's she trying to say in this? Like, it seems obvious, but what's she trying to say? Oh, okay. Yeah. She does live for the applause. Like, everything about life like she loves a show because she loves the attention and that's what she wants and that's what she's going for and keep bringing it on and like all this attention is not really bad that's israel right here they love the applause that they get in worship they love the thought of like look what we're doing here and the lord is going man no way no way amos is saying keep doing it you're just multiplying transgressions you're going to do this anyways that's terrifying so, I mean, look how far their sin had taken them. So far that they were oppressing the poor to get more luxury, that they were going to be hauled off to Assyrian captivity and they weren't even concerned about it, that, that they were worshiping, but all for show, and they couldn't even see it. This is terrifying to me. Terrifying. But it's not the most terrifying thing in this text. Terrifying, but not the most terrifying thing. Now look in verse 6. And this is, in verse 6, that's point number 4. Point number 4 is this. There were many terrifying moments when Yahweh judged Israel with warning judgments. If you're a guest here, Yahweh is just the Old Testament covenant name that God gave Israel to describe what he was like. It means I am what I am. And what I've told the church body is, like how could the infinite, immeasurable, all-powerful, all-knowing God describe himself to us, puny, finite? How could infinite describe himself to finite? I mean, our minds would get blown if he tried to actually give us all of what he is. We couldn't even contain it. In fact, we so much can't contain it that in glory, 
Like day one, you will not know everything about God day one. You will be learning and learning and learning and learning and learning about the wonder and majesty of God. So like if you read the word right now and you get excited for discovering new things about God, just wait till glory happens, right? Like your mind will be blown every single day, but it will probably be able to take it compared to now. So God says, if I'm going to describe myself to you, all I can say is I am what I am, which, which, which if you're a guest, how awesome is a God that says, I'm so, I'm, I'm so magnificent that the only way I can tell you about myself is I am what I am. So that God has come in and he's now saying to them, hey, I tried. This is terrifying. He gave them lots of little warning judgments here. And they didn't listen. Terrifying. I mean, look how good. Like people say all the time, like, oh, this God of wrath that you serve. Like, like, why do you talk about that? Because it's true. But also I want people to know this God of wrath is long suffering. Now, not forever, but this God gives warning after warning after warning. I mean, we've got 12 shorter minor prophets where God's just warning and warning and warning. Like no one can say that this God who is holy and will carry out his wrath is a bad God or a God that did not give a chance. So here's what happens. Look. This is, and this is, here's what's devastating about verses 6 through 11. Every one of these things, these smaller judgments that God does, what terrifies me about this is you can read Deuteronomy 28 and 29, and the Lord's word told them these judgments would happen if they disobeyed the law, if they disobeyed God, if they disobeyed his word, if they they disobeyed the law of Moses. Like God telecast it. His word had told them what would happen if they disobeyed. And in real time, they experienced some of these judgments in real time as little warnings, and they still don't take heed. That is terrifying. That is terrifying to know that I can know God's word and then see God do exactly what he said in his word would happen to me if I disobeyed, and I continue to walk in it. That's terrifying. That, like, that we could ignore God in such a manner. Look at it. So he said this, I gave you cleanness of teeth. Not, that doesn't mean they had good dental hygiene, okay? So that, that does not mean they just got their teeth scraped and they can now feel like the back of their teeth finally for the first time in like three months, okay? That's not what he's saying. If, if you don't know what that feels like, then you probably should go to the dentist, okay? That's your first sign. I gave you cleanness of teeth. It means like you had no food in your mouth. You had nothing caught up in your teeth. I gave you a lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. See, if you were to read Deuteronomy 28, 48, he said, the Lord had said, you will serve your enemies in famine and lack of everything. Like when they got in the land, if they did not obey the Lord, did not obey the law of Moses, if they did not obey how God had designed their society from their ceremonial to civil to moral law, that like this is what would happen. They would, they would have times of famine. That's exactly what happened. It was a little God's warning judgment. And it was even in, like, they knew about it. They, they could connect the dots on it. Didn't change them. That's terrifying that we could know God's word and see the result of God's word happening in our life and still just ignore it. Keep looking at this. Look at the next one. Um, I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain to another city. Now, if that happens, that was meant for them to go like, something must be up that this city gets rain and this city doesn't. This must be of God's hand, not circumstance. One field will have rain, and the field in which it did not rain would wither. 
Verse 8, so two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Deuteronomy 28, 23 warned them of this. It said, the Lord will turn the rain of your land into falling dust. Like he had warned and said, you will experience like lack of rain. Just so you know, in their day, they didn't, they didn't get to turn on the water holes and sprinkle the lawn. I mean, if you didn't get water, it's because you didn't get it from the sky. And they just ignored it. God, in his grace, let them know this, gave them these warning judgments before the Assyrian judgment, and they just ignored. Guys, this is terrifying. I'll give you an example. Um, In my, you know, I got a degree in biblical counseling, and one of the things that they stressed over and over and over and over in this degree, and they worked us over until we were very conversant in it, was the doctrine of forgiveness, of how forgiveness works from the heart to reconciliation. And when you even look in the scriptures, the Lord promises that there will be tormenting in our life for unforgiveness, right? If there is one sin that's, that's kind of underneath the radar, because you can't really see it like some other sins, it's this unforgiveness. And, and here's what is terrifying. The Lord has promised that if we're not forgiving of others, He won't be forgiving of us. And then we'll live like in a tormented life. And I'm telling you, I've been in this thing, I've been in this game over 25, 21 years, And the most tormented people I have seen in life are people who are unforgiving, right? Like people who are recalling what everybody has done towards them, recalling it, recalling it, not replacing it, but recalling it, unforgiving, unforgiving. And those people are just like these people. Like the Lord in his word had warned us about unforgiveness and what would happen in our life and how it would destroy us and how it would torment us. And then like you pointed out and like people will continue to walk in it. Exactly what they're doing. Guys, that's terrifying. Even in my own life, have you ever known that the Lord's word had said this is a sin? You got into that sin and did it anyways. Then you even saw the immediate repercussions of that sin and continued to walk in it. Ever been there before? I have. Isn't that terrifying? This is terrifying because even the smaller judgments that the Lord tries to give them, and even us in our own life, is meant to warn us from something even bigger. Wow. It's terrifying. He says, I struck you with blight, and I struck you with mildew in the next verse, verse 9. Your gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured. He said, a locust plague. Locust plagues have come on you. Deuteronomy 28, 38 says, the locusts will devour you. It's like, you don't obey me in the land. Like, this is going to happen to you. He says in verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. He promised in Deuteronomy 28, 60 that he would give, he would give them diseases like the diseases of Egypt if they rebelled against them. And over and over, do you see a common, what's the common thing the Lord says after each of these warning judgments? He says, and you did not what? Not return to me. That's terrifying. Like the Lord was so good, he warned them. He even showed them in real time what would happen and they kept going after it. That's terrifying to me. How far can sin take us? I mean, this is even the hardest thing, especially when it comes to morality, when it comes to sexual morality, is, is like I've seen people, and we've all, I mean, we've all been there in some way or, or, or another. And, and just so you know, just like here's the thing that happens so much. Like in our culture, when it comes to the subject of lust, like, Men and women typically approach this totally different, but neither are righteous, right? But sometimes one of the other thinks one of the other is more righteous. So, for instance, like, lust for men, 
Let, I, I give this example. Driving down a road, let's say you're driving down the road, probably not Collierville because I don't think Collierville allows billboards, right? Do we have billboards here? I don't think we have billboards. I don't feel like I see them, okay? But let's say you're outside of, you know, good old safe Collierville, right? Where sin doesn't reside, outside of Collierville. Let's say you're driving and you see a billboard and it's, I don't know, let's say it's like a Victoria's Secret kind of billboard, right? Here's how lust works, difference between a man and a woman. A man may see that billboard and go, and go, well, that looks nice. A woman looks at it and says, if I look like that, people would think better about me. What is that? That's just two different ways of lust, you know? Men look at it for what they can get. A woman will look at it for the power it could bring. So, like, like if you're a woman, you're kind of like, I can't believe like, I can't believe that men would, would struggle with pornography. I'm just like, wait, man, hold up, man. Like, if you're, basing your, if you're basing your identity on what other people think about you, then, man, you might be at the kind of the same level. We're just kind of different in how we approach this thing, right? So here's what I know. The Lord over and over and over has warned about the consequences of giving in to lust, right? And like over and over and over we get into it, right? That's terrifying, because the Lord has said what will happen to our life, how corrupting it is, how it destroys our relationship with God and others, but yet we keep getting in, 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 in. It's terrifying. But in our text, I don't know if that's really the most terrifying thing. Terrifying. I don't know if it's the most terrifying. Verse 11. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of, a burning yet, out of the burning, yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. Even in Deuteronomy 29, the Lord had said to them, it is, all its soil will be a burning waste of sulfur and salt, unsown, producing nothing, with no plant growing on it, just like the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord had warned them that this would happen. They're doing it. And God in His gracious kindness is is giving them, like, I've warned you, I've given you these, these warning judgments that I said what happened in Deuteronomy. You're ignoring it. And you did not return to me. Man, that's terrifying. So when I'm like studying this text this week, guys, I am like terrified reading this because here's the thing. People sometimes will say like, oh man, Nick, what you talked about, man, you were just coming right at me. Actually, I'm kind of trying to come right at myself many times, right? Like I, I'm a fellow sinner who is in need of grace. And this is what's terrifying about this whole entire passage. These, these things these people were doing are things that we are smacking with ourselves. Like, I think we have sometimes an inaccurate perception of luxuries. We have a, a showiness to our worship. We, have a, we know what God's word says, and we can even see sometimes the judgment immediately and the discipline immediately in our life, but we just keep going after it. Like, this is all terrifying to me. This is a terrifying matter in chapter 4. Welcome to Amos chapter 4. Wait till chapter 5. Actually, chapter 5 is a little bit better, actually. I, I'm, I'm practicing my smile. I'm going to floss next week. And, you know, it's going to be positive next week, so I'm ready. Look at verse 12. This is the most terrifying thing. I mean, man, getting hauled to Assyria with a fish hook in my mouth on a chain, that's terrifying. That's not the most terrifying. To know that I could actually be unsupportive and hurting of the poor by 
a covetousness to get to just get more stuff at the expense of obeying God, like that's terrifying. Like disobeying his word and seeing it and like that's terrifying, guys. This is what's most terrifying about this passage. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, he says, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's the most terrifying thing of this passage. Prepare to meet your God. Now, in the immediate context, that is referencing the Assyrian captivity that God is going to use. Yes, God can even use pagans to do his will. Now, they didn't do it right, and they get judged later for that. But God used pagans to do his will. So, it is a direct, in-context reference to what they were doing. But just so you know, that Assyrian judgment was not where it all stopped. Because the scriptures say, all men will come before the judgment seat of God. All men will face him. All men will stand there. So here's the scariest thing when I'm studying this text and reading it. Here's what's so scary about it. Prepare to meet your God. The scariest thing to me is meeting God, but not being prepared for it. That's the scariest thing. To meet God and not be prepared for it. When that prophet says, prepare to meet your God, it's not only the Assyrian, but we're talking like, it, like sometimes prophecy has a near and far. It's not only Assyria, but you can trace the lines and see that like there's coming a day of judgment. The scariest thing in life is to meet God and not be prepared for it. That is the most terrifying thing ever. It's terrifying his judgments. But it's terrifying when you haven't prepared for it. Like, what's the one thing that it's like, what should I do right now in life if I haven't done it? Prepare to meet God. Like, I can promise you, you, you may be able to escape paying taxes, but you will not escape meeting a holy, living Yahweh God. Prepare for it. You know, it's really hard when you read through the scriptures. You see that there's some people who are not prepared to meet God. I'll read this for you from Revelation 20. These are people who are meeting God at the white throne judgment, the, ju- the throne of judgment that unbelievers, those who are not followers of Jesus, go through. And here's what it says it's like for them. When I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by that what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to what he had done. So what happens is this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, when you face God's judgment, you will be judged for your sins and pay the full consequences of those sins, which is hell and in the end, the lake of fire. If you're a follower of Jesus... You will not be judged for your sins and you will not be condemned for your sins. That was done in Jesus. You have a totally different type of judgment. You don't go to the judgment seat, the white throne judgment seat of God. You go through what's called the mercy seat judgment. But here is this great white for the ones who are receiving the wrath of God. It says in verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So these would be people who were not prepared to meet God because everybody's going to meet God. But you know what's also like really terrifying is those that thought they were prepared to meet God and weren't. Like I look at that and, and 
and that like Revelation 20, these are people that, that, that just weren't prepared to meet God. They weren't prepared. That's the most terrifying thing. But now the scriptures even talk about a group of people who thought they were prepared to meet God but weren't. That's also terrifying. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be those who had a who were fans of Jesus, but not followers of Jesus. All right? There will be that in that day that some that, that had a profession of salvation, but not a possession of salvation. Now, I don't have all the time to, to, to thread this out, but the, the, the truth is this. If a person's a true follower of Jesus, there should be fruit in their life that gives evidence. And one of the most sobering things a person can do at times is say, am I in the faith? Not to doubt his power to save you, but to make sure that you're authentic in your walk as well. Like, am I convicted over sin? Do I repent? Do I have the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Do I desire to obey you? Do I see issues of obedience in my life? I mean, you understand, like, when I'm confronted with sin, when there's accountability, I respond to it. These are all great evidences that, that but not doubting His work, but doubting your own authenticity. But I will say this. Someone said to me, like, man, sometimes I question the authenticity of my salvation. I know that Jesus is fully sufficient to save, but I question, I look at my life, is that, you know, what do you think, Nick? And I would say, well, if you're asking yourself that question, there's probably, you're probably, you probably more than likely are his. Like the people who are asking themselves that question are asking it for a reason, right? It's the person who would say, I, I asked Jesus at Savior at 16, and it doesn't matter anymore. Like I just go and do whatever I want. I would say, well, Jesus did save you. I mean, I got saved at 16, but if tomorrow I cast all this off and never come back from it, it wasn't that I ever lost my salvation. It was that I was never actually saved to begin with because people who are saved will persevere to the end. doesn't mean you can't have a time of backsliding. It does mean that when you backslide, at some point you're, you are going to come back to the Lord. But the most terrifying thing is to meet God and not be prepared, but to think you were prepared and you weren't. See, if you were, and, and by the way, you know what's the scariest thing about hell is? Like, yes, there is a real hell. You know what's the scariest thing about hell? So we have this thing that people say all the time, like, and, you know, I, I grew up, this is what we kind of said, you know what's so bad about hell? It's that God's not there. You know, the scariest thing about hell is God. Here's the deal. God is, I mean, you can't take a God that calls himself Yahweh and go, not there. Oh, he's there. His presence to bless is not there. His presence to judge is there, okay? The scariest thing about hell is the white, hot wrath of God. It's not some devil walking around with a pitchfork, okay? And, you know, that's not what makes hell scary. Which, that's not even true like that, okay? Like God is the scariest thing, his wrath. Look, if, if you were to look, you don't have to, but you can. Revelation 14, verse 9 through 11 says... And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, receives the mark on his forehead and on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Talking about Jesus. 
Like, what's the scariest thing about hell is, is God. Like, that's the most scariest thing about hell. It's God. His presence to judge, not bless. Now, heaven is to bless. So I'm telling you, man, the most terrifying thing in life is to meet God without Jesus. The most terrifying thing in life is to not be prepared to meet him. That's Israel right here. The greatest thing in life is to actually be prepared to meet Jesus. I love Revelation 21. Because when a person has prepared to meet Jesus, and they've, they've gone from a fan to a follower, this is what it's like. Revelation 21, 1 through 7, John says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be, their, will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain, for the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end of the thirsty. I will give from the spring of water without payment to the one who conquers he will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my people. That is the greatest. Man, that is what it's like to prepare to meet God. The most terrifying thing in our text is these people were not prepared to meet God and they were going to. Not only through Assyria, but through God himself. And just so in case they forgot this, look at verse 13. Just in case they thought. This is why I say there was an immediate context to this, right? And it was a serious coming for you. That was how they were going to viscerally experience God's judgment. But just so you know, that wasn't the end of the story. Because look what he does now in verse 13. Just in case they thought Assyria is the one that's terrifying. Look at it in verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord... The God of hosts is his name. So who's the most terrifying one here? Is it Assyria? No. It's a magnificent, holy Yahweh, I am God. The God who forms the mountains. If you don't think God's powerful, just take a vacation to Colorado and look at these mountains and go like, okay, I get it now. I'm puny, okay? Just, just try, like, if you think, if you want to know how powerful God is, just a, I mean, just like a, like a grain of sand, how powerful. Go home today and watch what Hurricane Dorian's doing, right? And just know that that's a drop in the bucket to the kind of wind our God has. I mean, try to guess the motivations of people, right? Have you ever tried to be this kind of person like, oh, I know what you're thinking, and you knew you were... Have you ever, have you ever tried to diagnose what you, what you thought yourself and just couldn't even piece it together? How powerful is this God? He's accurate about your thoughts. How powerful is this God? He... That he wakes the that who who makes the morning darkness. This is the one that brings light, that brings darkness at the end of the day. This is the powerful God. This is the one that we must be prepared to meet. The most terrifying moment is not Israel, is not Assyria. It's meeting a holy God. I pray that you're ready to meet Him, because He's coming. Would you do this? Would you just bow your head for one moment? Worship team, you can make your way up here. But I do have to ask this question because this is the text. 
prepare to meet your God. With your heads bowed, eyes closed, I don't even do this very often, but it's Labor Day. Why not? If you're here this morning, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to call you up. I'm going to ask you. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to make you stand up or anything like that. Here's what I want to do. If you're kind of like, you know, Nick, I'm not sure I'm prepared to meet God. I don't know if I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I've trusted him as my Lord and Savior. I just would, man, this is kind of shaking me to talk about this. I need prayer, and would you help me to, to be willing to, to be willing to prepare. You know, maybe that's you. Would you just slip your hand up? No one's looking at you. And then just say, would you just pray for me today, Nick, for that? Would you just do that for me? Because that's really me. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up so I can pray over you? I'm not going to call your name out. I don't do anything like that. I just want to pray for you. If that's you, like I'm not prepared. I am not prepared. I want to pray. If you're here and you're, you know you're not prepared, but something's woken inside of you today and you're like, yeah, I believe this. I believe that he's my sin substitute. I want to pray a prayer. The prayer's not say, saves you, but this is a prayer. You, you'd pray something like this if, if like you started to believe this. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I have disobeyed your commands. And I know that Jesus lived those commands perfectly and qualified to go to the cross and be my substitute. Suffer the wrath of God in my place. And you rose from the dead the third day, showing that you were victorious. You satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. It was finished. And I, I, now, I now trust in you. I believe that you are my sin substitute. Help me to follow you. If you said something like that as I was praying, if you could assent to that, that this might be your day of salvation. You might have just prepared yourself to meet God. You might have just prepared yourself. Lord, you bless our time of just singing back to you as God's people. And for the rest of us in here, would you let our souls weigh heavy to help people, to prepare people to meet God? I can't save a one person. But I know till, till the last breath on, my, on this day, on this earth, you want me to prepare people for that day. So help us to follow in the line of an Amos here. We'll trust you. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We'll have a time of singing back to the Lord, thinking over the things we've talked about, seeing what the Lord does to imprint this on our soul, and then we'll have some announcements and be dismissed this morning.